so I am continuing my series that no one asked for on Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, the book by Shunri Suzuki that many of you probably have read. If you looked for an intro book to Buddhism, it's something I read at the beginning of my practice starting to get into Zen. And something that I think is interesting to return to again and again, um, Zen mind, beginner's mind, we're always beginners. And so as people who are just starting out practicing, people who've been practicing for many years, people who've been practicing for their whole lives, uh, I think always a really interesting text to return to. And all I do in this practice is remind myself of things I've forgotten truths I've learned that I've then completely forgotten about. So I think it's a good, it's a good reminder. And this chapter came in the series naturally, single-minded way, but I wanted to include a slightly later chapter, um, No Trace, uh, in this book because I think it goes together nicely and uh, the chapter No Trace is probably my favorite chapter in all of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. When I read it, it seemed like truth to me with a capital T and something that I felt like if I could tattoo on my brain, like I would suffer a lot less, which is the point of Buddhism. No suffering, no, uh, you know, less in dukkha. And so for me, no trace had that significance. And yet it's something I found myself noticing recently, leaving traces everywhere. So leaving um, no trace is not something I've been very good at or ever been very good at. I feel myself leaving traces everywhere. And when you think about what a trace is, like everything, like the, the idea of no trace is in an action, we'll get to it and we'll read the chapter, but in an action, completely doing that action and then letting it go. And any time we don't do that, we leave a trace on, on our actions, whether it's, you know, an argument with a loved one, whether it's work, whether it's something you took pride in, like you, you're the best casserole maker, or you drew something beautiful, you're the best artist, or you gave the best talk at ACCC, or, or whatever you like have done, whether it's something you really took pride in or something that was an embarrassment or felt like a failure, this, this clinging to it, this thinking about it, obsessing over it after it's been done is leaving a trace. And I feel like if you imagine like on all the things I've done, going back to like middle school, going back way back, like like these muddy fingerprints, these these inky fingerprints on everything that I've ever done. And it's not just, oh, you leave traces on these on these things, on these actions, whether it's like a thing I did for work, you know, last week or something someone said to me in middle school, like, 20 years ago, whatever, more than 20 years ago, whatever that is, it's not just those fingerprints that are left. Imagine like, it's not ink, it's these like, this goo, these strands that connect you still like to those, to those actions, to those things in the past. Like, it's not just the muddy fingerprints or the inky fingerprints. It's as if these long tendrils of your fingerprints are still stretching to you now, to me now. I feel sticky, right? It's a stickiness, it's, it's attachment. And with all these things that we leave traces on, with all these things that we leave fingerprints on, 
and these tendrils that are still sticking to us. It's like when you try to move in the world with that, it feels like you're moving so slow, like it's molasses, like all these things sticking to all the things you've ever done, you've ever took pride in, you've ever been embarrassed by, that, you, that you're still, that's still with you in some way, like it's holding, it's, it's a heaviness, it's an attachment to, to everything and it's, it's really hard to move and to live with, with all these attachments, with all these traces, with all these things. And so how do we work to, to lighten our load? How do we work to, to leave no trace and to remind ourselves again and again to leave no trace? And I think part of it is what contained in the chapter by Shunri Suzuki, Single-Minded Way. So he begins, if you want to express yourself, your true nature, there should be some natural and appropriate way of expression. Even swaying right and left as you sit down or get up from zazen is an expression of yourself. It is not preparation for practice or relaxation after practice. It is part of the practice. So we should not do it as if we were preparing for something else. This should be true in your everyday life. To cook or to fix some food is not preparation, according to Dogen. It is practice. To cook is not just to prepare food for someone or for yourself, it is to express your sincerity. So when you cook, you should express yourself in your activity in the kitchen. You should allow yourself plenty of time. You should work on it with nothing in your mind and without expecting anything. You should just cook. That is also an expression of our sincerity, a part of our practice. It is necessary to sit in zazen in this way, but sitting is not our only way. Whatever you do, it should be an expression of the same deep activity. We should appreciate what we are doing. There is no preparation for something else. So one side of it is fully just doing what you're doing without thinking of anything else. When you're cooking, you're just cooking. When you're working, you're just working. When you're with a loved one, you're just being with a loved one. Obviously, we know Zazen, Shikantaza, our practice is just sitting, adding the word just to everything you do in your life, like boiling it down to its essential nature, just giving a talk, just sitting, listening to a talk, just driving, just drinking tea, whatever it is, just doing it and not thinking or preparing or being anywhere else but in this activity. I think in a, in a, in a culture like our Western culture and culture that prizes work like um, a Japanese culture, a Korean culture, American culture, we, we really have this work ethic of like, like we're not Europe, we're not taking six week vacations. It is like very easy to throw ourselves into work and to feel like that's, that's like, that's our life and this is us. I think the dark side of that is, okay, let's say you're the, the casserole maker, right? The best casserole maker and everyone loves your casseroles. What if you make a bad casserole? But you're the casserole maker, you're the best casserole maker. What if your casserole, you know, whether it's the oven, you can blame something else. What if your casserole is bad? What does that mean to you? If you've defined yourself as the best casserole maker, if you've taken pride in it, if you've taken value in it, if it's part of your identity, if, if you love your casserole making so much that you're like, it, it, is, it is part of you and how you value yourself. If you make a bad casserole, what does that mean to who you are and what, what value you have? And also, what if you make an amazing casserole and someone doesn't like green onion? 
and they don't like your everyone else likes your casserole but one person is like i hate this casserole or like no thank you no i'm not hungry and you're and then you obsess over that one person who doesn't like your amazing casserole you guys better like any casserole I bring to the center, <laughs> by the way. It's clearly, clearly there's an issue here. But in this metaphor, you know, if, if you, I think we, especially with work, but with anything, I think, we identify with our jobs to the point of our jobs are part of our value. And it's not just a job, it's a title. Being a mother, a father, a daughter, a friend, like, these these things that that are good things that are being a good hard worker and and being a, a good casserole maker are all good things positive things but if, if we tie ourselves into it as this is us or this has some tie to our value we'll always suffer because there'll always be a bad casserole i'm sorry for just kicking this metaphor to death there'll always be someone who doesn't like our casserole They'll always be, and even if like, even if, you know, we, that never occurs, we'll get like too old to make casseroles anymore. And then what? And then who are we? So I think in this sense, like this is, I think you could take this statement by Shuri Suzuki, by like who's who's quoting Dogen, that like to cook and to express our sincerity and to do throw ourselves completely in activity as if it is to do this thing that we're doing where we identify with it and we make it ourselves. But I don't think that's what he's saying. Just cooking is leaving is cooking without leaving a trace. And cooking or working or being a friend or a mother or a, a sister to someone with a trace is not just doing it. It's doing it with attachment. So if that makes sense, I think that that's an important distinction to make. So he goes on to say the Bodhisattva's way is called the single-minded way or one railroad track thousands of miles long. The railroad track is always the same. If it were to become wider or narrower, it would be disastrous. Wherever you go, the railway track is always the same. That is the Bodhisattva's way. So even if the sun were to rise from the west, the Bodhisattva has only one way. His way is in each moment to express his nature and his sincerity. So if you're like me, when you read this, that sounds great, right? I want to be on the railway track. Like, where's that railway track? Like, I want to be on it. Wonderful. Like, let me just be on this railway track that's the Bodhisattva's one way. In each moment expressing my nature and my sincerity, that sounds great. But, Shinji Suzuki goes on to say, we say railway track, but actually there's no such thing. Sincerity itself is a railway track. The sights we see from the train will change, but we're always running on the same track. And there is no beginning or end to the track, beginningless and endless track. There is no starting point, no goal, nothing to attain. Just to run on the track is our way. This is the nature of our Zen practice. And here's where my first inclination comes back to bite me. When you become curious about the railway track, danger is there. You should not see the railway track. If you look at the track, you'll become dizzy. Just appreciate the sights you see from the train. This, that is our way. There is no need for the passengers to be curious about the track. Some will take care of it. Buddha will take care of it. So I think, again, warning about this, this danger in, in throwing yourself into an activity, in just sitting or just cooking or just working or just being, about being attached to that itself. Like, you can leave a trace on just sitting, a trace on just cooking, a trace on just being if, if you are too attached to what it is 
and too unnaturally focused on it, which is really tricky and hard. And if you if you don't if you don't think about it, if you just accept that that if you sit and if you cook and if you be and and if you love without thinking was it the, was it sincere enough what is about was it bodhisattva's way enough was it in the moment enough was it expressing my nature enough you know that is that is just that is not just sitting that is sitting with with trace that is sitting with these inky fingerprints all over it so now we go into the chapter of no trace so when we practice zazen our mind is calm and quite simple but usually our mind is very busy and complicated and it is difficult to be concentrated on what we are doing. This is because before we act, we think, and this thinking leaves some trace. Our activity is shadowed by some preconceived idea. This thinking not only leaves some trace or shadow, but also gives us many other notions about other activities and things. These traces and notions make our minds very complicated. When we do something with a quite simple, clear mind, we have no notion or shadows, and our activity is strong and straightforward. We do something with a complicated mind in relation to other things or people or society, our activity becomes very complex. So I use this inky fingerprint or like gooey tendrils connecting to everything else, which shadow I think is another really good metaphor for this. Like everything, doing everything with some shadow attached to it, some dark side, some trace, something that makes what we're doing not just what it is, but a thousand other things. What does other people think of what we're doing? And what does what we're doing uh, mean after we're dead? What does what we're doing, what is this casserole, <laughs> you know, what does this casserole mean for all the other casseroles we've ever made and all the other casseroles we will make and all the other casseroles that our friends are making? Maybe I should make a casserole when I go home. Uh, <laughs> like, what is this, what does this mean for everything else, like thinking, making everything attached to something else and instead of just doing it, instead of just releasing ourselves from, from that burden, because it is a heavy, heavy burden, and just doing something, just taking action and doing it, and doing what we do. I think in my life, I've, I'm not very good at this, but if I can do something, that it's not perfect, but I think Luckily, I've, I've learned to approach Zaza in this way, and that's sort of how I entered this practice. And I don't know if I would meditate without the ability to do this, because I think it would drive me insane. That when I sit Zazen, and the reason I was drawn to this center is this attitude of when you sit Zazen, when it's over, you're like, that was my Zazen. I might have been constructing my subsequent talk in my mind the whole time, or thinking about what I have to do, or making my grocery list, or thinking about something someone said to me three years ago, that whole time. But when that's done, that's my Zazen. And also the the ability, the 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 blessing, for lack of a better word, that Dogen has given us in the Shoba Genzo, that even just for a millisecond of a millisecond, if we sit Zazen perfectly, for a millisecond of a millisecond, then everything is, everything is in its place, everything is perfect, the whole world is enlightened and has true Buddha nature. So that's all we, that's the goal, like, uh, like that's all we need, a millisecond of a millisecond of sitting Zazen in the perfect posture with our minds in the moment, that's all we need. Uh, and so that sort of, that benediction and the idea of that's my Zazen, whatever it was, it's over, has helped me a lot 
in my practice and meditation. I think if I were to believe there was something to attain, there were levels, there was a right or wrong way. And I have, it has crossed my mind. Oh, Jason seems to be really having a, having a really calm zazen. Like, it, should I be having, like, is, my, is his zazen better than my zazen? Of course, of course, that has crossed my mind. But generally, I can dismiss that thought or, or put it aside and just let it happen. And that's generally I can do zazen without that. And I think that saved my meditation practice because if I, I'm just not, I'm just too neurotic to not to be given like levels I have to attain because I would, I would be obsessed with attaining them. So at least there's, there's that for me. But I think the ways in which I do suffer is when every other part of my life I can't say well that's work or well that's cooking that's the casserole <laughs> or that's you know that's the argument or whatever whatever that was in your life that have traces to it becomes more difficult for me to detach so Shonda Suzuki goes on to say the other side of this what I mentioned before it's not just bad things it's not just embarrassment humiliation, failure, all those old chestnuts. It's the good things too. It's the things you value about yourself, the things, the, the metaphor about the, the good casserole. If you're a good casserole, if you're a good worker, you know, what happens when you do something bad? What happens when you make a mistake, which we all constantly do over and over again, as, as, as much as we try not to, we always make a mistake. What happens then? Or what happens when you don't make a mistake with someone thinks you've made a mistake, what happens then? Whatever it is, whatever perception of your value and worth is that's tied to your activity, what happens when that doesn't go, to, that doesn't work out for you? So Shinrizuki says, often we think what we have done is good, but it may not actually be so. When we become old, we are often very proud of what we have done. When others listen to someone proudly telling something which he has done, they will feel funny because they know his recollection is one-sided. They know that what he has told them is not exactly what he did. Moreover, if he is proud of what he did, that pride will create some problem for him. Repeating his recollections in this way, his personality will be twisted more and more till he becomes quite a disagreeable, stubborn fellow. This is an example of leaving a trace of one's thinking. We should not forget what we did, but it should be without an extra trace. To leave a trace is not the same as to remember something. It is necessary to remember what we have done, but we should not become attached to what we have done in some special sense. What we call attachment is just these traces of our thought and activity. This is important because as I, I think I, I was even saying it as if remembering was the problem, but of course we have to remember what we've done. You know, it's evolutionary. We have to remember that, you know, to survive as a species that when we walk past a certain cave, a jaguar comes out and tries to eat us, you know, like we have to remember and just in a simpler sense, of course, of course, we're going to remember everything we've done. Of course, we're going to remember successes and failures, but to not become attached in some special sense to that is these traces of thought and activity, as Suzuki says. So this is the part that I really, really like want tattooed on my brain. This is the part that I wish I could just embody and do and, and that all of us could embody and do so we would suffer less. So 
In order not to leave any traces, when you do something, you should do it with your whole body and mind. You should be concentrated on what you do. You should do it completely, like a good bonfire. You should not be a smoky fire. You should burn yourself completely. If you do not burn yourself completely, a trace of yourself will be left in what you do. You will have something remaining which is not completely burned out. Zen activity is activity which is completely burned out, with nothing remaining but ashes. This is the goal of our practice. That is what Dogen meant when he said, ashes do not come back to firewood in the Genjo Koan. Ash is ash. Ash should be completely ash. The firewood should be firewood. When this kind of activity takes place, one activity covers everything. So I'm just going to repeat part of it again because I like it so much. You should do it completely like a good bonfire. You should not be a smoky fire. You should burn yourself completely. If you do not burn yourself completely, a trace of yourself will be left in what you do. You will have something remaining which is not completely burned out. Zen activity is activity which is completely burned out with nothing remaining but ashes. This is the goal of our practice. When this kind of activity takes place, one activity covers everything. So, I want to try something, and I, this is not Zen or Buddhism, this is just me making stuff up, but I thought it might help me, and by extension, maybe help someone else. And so, I want us all to close our eyes and think of a trace, and think of a small trace that, we, that we've left, or, or if you can't think of a small trace, if you only think of big traces, which I think I have at hand closer than the smaller traces but if you have a big trace maybe a, a small part of that of that big trace just an aspect of it so imagine this trace that you've left that you've left that's that's a tendril that's sticking to you that's that's weighing you down that's slowing you down and think of it like a like a photograph in your hand hold it in your hand like a photograph and with your other hand like light a match and take this this match and Put it to the edge of this photograph of this trace and burn it up. Let it light on fire and, and watch the photograph burn up and crumple and, and, and turn over on itself and turn to ash and let it burn up completely in your mind. And take this ash and just throw it away, toss it away in your mind. Now, if you're like me, <laughs> another photograph pops up in its place. But maybe this photograph is a little bit lighter, a little bit less developed. And hopefully, hopefully, hopefully the moment you felt a moment of pleasure or freedom at the, at the moment this, this trace burned away, you burned this trace and this isn't even what Suruzuki is saying. He's saying, not after the fact, but during the activity, leave no trace. Burn it up during the activity. But if that's not possible, at least, at least we can try to, to, to lighten some, if not all, of these traces and burn them up and let go of them and, and, and let them burn away. And, and it almost seems like a part of us is afraid of letting these traces go because, you know, we like 
making casseroles and we like getting praise for these casseroles or we like the work we do. It's even fun sometimes having an argument and obsessing over the argument. And, you know, whether it's while you're driving your car or, or while you're sitting zazen, you know, turning this argument over and over in your head and re-arguing with this this person, this invisible person that you've that you've argued with in real life, and and really just giving it to them and saying all the things that you wish you could have said. There's a there's a pleasure in that, but it's not a light pleasure. It's a heavy pleasure, and it's a pleasure tied to suffering and attachment. And so maybe if we practice burning these traces up, either if we're if we're good like enough, like in our, not good enough, that's a horrible way to put it. If we're, if, if we can, if we can, while we're doing these activities, if we can do one activity, like brush our teeth and just burn it up, you know, completely, burn ourselves up completely brushing our teeth, an easy one, you know, washing a counter, burn ourselves up completely, washing a counter. If we can, if we're strong enough to do that, maybe, maybe, maybe we can do more and more and more and lighten, lighten our load a little bit. But even that is, is hard and it's admittedly difficult. My husband and I go back and forth on this all the time because when one of us cleans the kitchen or does the dishes, like inevitably right after that, another of us will have to make lunch. And we're sort of like, well, why do you have to make lunch? Uh, because, well, we have to eat, you know, we cleaned and then things get dirty again. And that happens over and over and over again. An instrument that you tune goes out of tune almost instantly. And that, that always frustrated me. I was like, I tuned this. How is it going out of tune? It's built to go out of tune and being tuned again and again and again is, is what life is. Um, so Senator Suzuki goes on to say, there should be no traces in our activity. We should not attach to some fancy ideas or to some beautiful things. We should not seek for something good. The truth is always near at hand within your reach. So this idea that we're, we're, we're attaching to these fancy ideas or beautiful things of this, of this perfect work or this perfect relationship or this perfect casserole is not, is not, is leaving a trace. Is this something good is leaving a trace. This, this adding a qualifier to it, right? Not good or, or good casserole, bad casserole, good work, bad work, good relationship, bad relationship. You know, the seeking for that, this wanting things to be other than what they are, exactly what they are, will always cause us suffering, will always weigh us down again and again and again. But the truth is always near at hand within our reach. So this reminds me of the Bhagavad Gita. Let's go to some Hinduism. Because there's, there's a line from it that I always, always liked and found frustrating because it's nearly impossible to do. So you are only entitled to the action, never to its fruits. Do not let the fruits of action be your motive, but do not attach yourself to non-action. So when we act, when we give a talk, when we listen to a talk, when we sit zazen, when we drink tea, when we clean the dishes, we act. But we don't own its fruits. We're not entitled. And this is something I've felt 
you know, again and again and again, entitled to the fruits of my action, owed the fruits of my action, owed control over the outcome in some way. And this feeling of entitlement, of, of this owing of the outcome has caused me suffering again and again and again. But I'm not entitled to the fruits. I'm, I'm entitled to the action. That's where I have some power, some control, if you can call it that. That's where I have some ability to govern what I do. The action, the washing of the dish, the baking of the casserole, the, the, the work. I'm only entitled to that, never to the outcome, never to the fruits of it. And if I, I cannot let the fruits of action be my motive, but that doesn't mean that I don't act. That doesn't mean not to act at all. I think it's easy to be a teenager about all of this and be like, well, nothing matters anyway. That's, I think people confuse a lot of Buddhist tenets with nihilism, but I think nihilism is not, is not what this is advocating. It's never what Buddhism is advocating. It's advocating radical engagement with everything, which is much harder, much, much harder than nihilism. So acting without attachment to its roots. And to close the talk, I'm going to quote from the Single-Minded Way, which is, after this talk, the only way to, to have taken this talk in and listened to it. So when my talk is over, your listening is over. There is no need to remember what I say. There is no need to understand what I say. You understand. You have full understanding within yourself. There is no problem. So, I'd love to open this for a discussion. Thanks for the talk, Emily. I really like this talk. It's something, it's like, yeah, this idea of doing things without attachment is, I've been kind of thinking about it a lot and of course like thinking about it in context of, of painting because it's what I do and you know like kind of noticing like if uh, I'm making a painting I'm worried like if it's good or if people will like it you know and you know it's there's all these attachments I have to the action of painting and it seems that like maybe the painting isn't doesn't turn out good because I'm like you know so attached to to like you know how it's going to turn out and stuff and so you know then there's the idea of like doing it without attachment you know and trying to paint that way and and quickly though for me like you know this idea creeps in like well if I do the painting without attachment it'll just magically be good right <laughs> you know it's like a, and so it's like first of all it's not true and second of all it's like you know, that's another attachment right yeah, yeah. yeah yeah so it seems like you know a lot of what Shunryu Suzuki's kind of getting at like to use your example is like you know a bad casserole is still perfect yes absolutely yeah that's a really thank you for that point that's really important i think that that's something i could easily fall into too well if i you know if i write my job as a writer if i write without attachment it's going to be great so i'm gonna it's gonna be perfect everyone's gonna love it i'm gonna win my oscar you know whatever it is um and the like the idea that like it's okay to have a bad casserole and that that is part of 
of everything and that's part of reality as it is and that reality as it is includes both bad and good cast roles and doesn't discriminate between them bad and good paintings bad and good works of art bad and good actions you know not to <laughs> not to you know advocate for you know immorality but mistakes like you know reality as it is includes mistakes and that's perfection the best creative advice i ever got was perfect is the enemy of good and i think zen buddhism goes a step further and tries to remove that qualifier from it and that if you know there's a purity of action if there's a focus a singular focus of action it doesn't matter what the outcome is it doesn't matter if it's a good painting it's a painting and it's a casserole and then there'll be other paintings and there'll be other casseroles and and then you'll just live your life but thank you so much yeah i need to second a great talk something i really wanted and needed to hear today i'm just trying to think about the things you were talking about in the context of my own life, my own issues. And I guess I always feel like if I don't like really be neurotic or suffer while I'm doing something, that it's not going to be any good kind of the opposite no. you say. <laughs> you know, uh, and like I hate to, to take the metaphor, I hate to cook. And the longer I'm in the kitchen banging pans around and being completely miserable and thinking yeah. this is going to be awful, oh, yeah. the better it usually is. And my husband will often say, I can taste the suffering. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> but it makes the whole thing, the whole process just not good. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It maybe as a creative person you could maybe speak a little bit about that. 100%. Like that is the other side of that same coin, right? It's the same coin, but it's the other side. There is this metaphor of the tortured artist. Things need to be suffered for to be good. Like I think I was like I never did it, but I was convinced in my mid 20s that like probably to be a writer I had to have a drug addiction um, because that's what everyone or, or alcoholism or something because that's what they they all did you know but Hemingway not not a happy man but I think it's like it's beyond creativity too like I think there's this there's this feeling of if I if I was stressed out if I if I was stressed out doing something then it must have been really good like and this this like I know exactly what you mean this like this badge of, of, of suffering that we wear um, when we do something like, oh, like, like I had a really hard day at work and I was so stressed out and I, like, I think my health is like affected now, like, you know, and it's not exaggerated. It's really your health is affected. Like we have, so I know so many people who like, who have like, who have, you know, back aches and heart palpitations and stress-related the illnesses that have not to do with nothing but stress. So there is this feeling that we have to suffer and the attention we get from suffering that, oh wow, you must have done such a good job because you, or you really suffered to do this. So that I have to respect that in some way is, is, an, is a part of our ego and it's a part of that trace and it and it in the moment in in the way that things that are bad for us feel good like even though that stress is like literally destroying our body and making what we do miserable there's like a like a perverse pleasure in it of like yeah i really i really bled for this or i really made myself miserable for this and that's that's 
in no way like related to the quality of work. In fact, it probably makes what you do, uh, like think about like how much, like if you think like of a, of a famous tortured artist like, like Hemingway or something, think, of, which I'm not a huge Hemingway fan, but that's the first one that came to mind. <laughs> but if you think about like, like how good he was and what a, what a famous great American author he was, but if you remove the misery and suffering, like how good he could have been, a lot of people talk like when it's like oh like family that we've been talking to about Buddhism they're like well I would meditate but I don't want to lose my edge as if this edge you know is something that you laugh but so many people feel like this this edge is something that like makes you good makes you better and like think of how good like these artists these tortured artists would be without that suffering like how much more prolific like how, what new heights they would attain and even that that's like falling into the dichotomy again right the danger like that jason brought up like just think about like how much they would have enjoyed a cup of tea more or something like some simple thing and think also like that these tortured artists some of the most successful, like wealthy, rich people we know. I mean, Buddha was a prince, right? He went on this journey in the stories. I don't think it's a coincidence that this guy who started this whole thing of suffering literally had everything he could ever want at his fingertips. Like the stories are like he had like all the beautiful dancing pregnant concubines he could want, like literally that, like all the riches, all the food and feasts. And his father made sure he had everything at his fingertips. This was a literal, like the most privilege you could you could ask for and think of and this person had and he was the one to step out because it wasn't it wasn't enough like it didn't stop you from dying and getting sick and suffering so i guess what i'm saying is if we don't act uh without traces when when we reach the end of our life which could be tomorrow or 10, 20, 40, 50 years from now, I guess I don't think we'll be worried about that casserole or that, you know, work report or even that, you know, I think it's harder when it comes to something creative, right? Because that's supposed to be your legacy or whatever, that, that piece of art or that piece of writing. I think we'll just like, you know, want one more moment of drinking tea not to like make us go over but there's a there's a play called our town that i always bring up but it always makes me think of the end of our town when this this woman who's died has to go back for what uh, let's begs to go back for one day in her normal life and her the ghosts like in this play are like no don't go back like you don't want to try it like and she's like i want to go back to my wedding day like definitely don't do that that's like going to be the worst go back to an ordinary day so she goes back to her 12th birthday and she's just like in some productions i think they literally like cook bacon on stage so you're in this scene where you're like literally smelling this day and it's an ordinary day and she tries to exist in this day when everyone's talking and moving and just just existing in their lives and she's like slow down you're moving too fast you're not looking at each other and she can't stand it and she has to go back and the other ghosts are like we told you like it's it's rough out there like the idea that like some ordinary thing this like eating cornflakes, sitting zazen, it's just enough. It's not good or bad or all these quantifiers we put on it. It's just enough. It's just life. And that's that's really all we have is this this cup of tea and that.
you know, even this, the, the, like the, the uncomfortable thing, the, the boring thing, the mundane thing, like when that's not around, when that's, you know, and when that's seen as, as what it is, as, as reality, as what our whole like non-goal of practices to remind ourselves that of reality as it is, when it's just taken for what it is, there's a beauty in that because there's nothing attached to it and it's, it's lighter. I really appreciated the part where you spoke about that millisecond that we're sitting there meditating and the rest of the time I'm daydreaming about whatever because I always want to criticize myself because Jason's meditation is better than mine too. I'm always worried about that. That's why we keep them around. Shame, <laughs> to shame others. So anyway, I didn't know jaguars lived in caves, but that was good information too. I don't know if that's accurate. <laughs> Maybe a bear, something like that. But I really, you know, I really enjoyed talking about the praise and blame. In my previous life, I was an air traffic controller. And when I got done, sometimes I'd want somebody to go, good job, pat me on the back. Other times people wouldn't say anything. And if they criticized it, I'd be like, oh, you know, I'm good. But I, I, there were other times when I was just flowing with it, not leaving a trace. And I could work all the airplanes in the sky and not even affect me and then get out and go on break. And just, you know, it was good. I didn't need to praise. I didn't need to blame. I just did it for the sake of doing it. You know, when someone says you look nice today, you're like, today? <laughs> <laughs> Like what? You know, even a compliment, even a compliment is conditioned, right? Like, and if it, if it has conditions, like you'll suffer. Like, and if you, if you put any stock, I mean, obviously I think it's hard to avoid, to avoid conditions being imposed on you existing in the world. But if you put any stock in that, if you cling to you look nice today and what did I do today that was different than yesterday? And what did I look like yesterday? And if, it, oh, they didn't give me the, the like, the, they're not gonna give me this compliment tomorrow. What does that mean I look like tomorrow? Whatever it is, you did well today, whatever it is. Uh, if, you, if you hold on to the condition, you will always, always suffer. And so to somehow, pour yourself into your work and do that thing that you were saying that where you work air traffic control and you use lights and without needing anything and you're just doing it to do it fully and then constantly try to avoid the conditions of either praise or blame the highs and the lows that anything that's conditioned on your work is our lifelong practice my lifelong practice i haven't perfected it yet thank you so much Thanks. Yeah, I really love this talk. Just wanted to say thank you for that. I love the idea of, you know, I also think I need to like re-remind myself these things all the time. And yeah, thank you. It's really hard <laughs> <laughs> to be a human being, but if we can reduce our suffering, even that small, if we can reduce our traces, burn up one trace and not let it grow again as quickly, then hopefully we will suffer less and, and enjoy our tea more or just drink tea without enjoyment. <laughs> don't be attached to them. Don't be attached to tea, eat, eat casseroles, you know. Don't compliment anyone, don't insult anyone. Just eat your casseroles. Thanks for your talk. How do you handle the case where you, you know, like so you do a creative project and you do feel compelled to put yourself out there? You feel like your work is good and you should be recognized for it. I'm not saying that this is like me personally, but like, you know, sometimes I have experienced that, you know, where I do something, I'm like, oh, that's pretty good. I want to like, I want to be seen. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'm wondering if like that non-action in the Bhagavad Gita quote is something related to that, where it's like, you know, I think about Zen and I think about non-attachment and just 
doing the art creation is its own reward. But then sometimes there is part of me that comes up that's like sort of sticky and kind of uncomfortable and I don't actually yeah. know how to respond to yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really good question. And I just want to acknowledge for a second, you're asking me as if I'm in some position yeah. of authority. <laughs> I'm sitting right here on the cushion with you, like just because I'm giving a talk <clears throat> doesn't mean I know this answer more than anyone in this room. But I'm going to try to answer that because that's something I deal with in my work too. I'm a writer. So literally to make enough money to put a roof over my head and give, you know, food on the table for my cat, I have to like put my work out there and be like, this is good enough to be seen and to be read and hire me, you know, give, give me a job. So of course, I think that's a part of it. And this is not saying we all have to be humble, like cobblers, you know, it's not saying that the only good work is to just work in, in silence or anonymity or do something humble or, you know, sweep a, a, a street. You know, it's not saying that. It's saying that I think, and it's really tricky, and I don't think it's just in a creative endeavor or, or anything like that, but in any endeavor, like you could, wouldn't go into a job interview and be like, well, aw shucks, like, I'm not really that good, but I think you should hire me. Like, you have to, you know, be like, this is my work, and and I think that, like, what are your strengths? And you have to answer that really stupid question, you know, like that you know, they ask you in job interviews, and, you know, but without worrying about the results, right? So put your work out there and think, you know, this is, this is out there and I worked hard on this and this is work and I like this and I enjoy it. I like this, this painting or this casserole and I, and I want people to eat it and I want people to see it and enjoy it. That's not an ego, I think, attached to it. A, a painting is meant to be seen. Like I'm a, a a TV writer, like a, a piece of TV writing is nothing without like a, a viewer or a reader. Things are made to be taken and that's not a bad thing to, to put yourself out there. It's not trace, but, but it's really hard, I think, to put a work out there or to do a job, even like if you're an office worker, you know, to, to you know, do your data entry without attaching yourself to the results of it. The, the praise by your boss, the, the work that you've done. I mean, Van Gogh like died in poverty and he didn't stop painting. I mean, he stopped when he went insane, but for, for most of his life, he, he painted these paintings that are now on, you know, mouse pads and coffee cups and it's like almost cliches. Then he painted these paintings to varying degrees of, of not success and he did it anyway because he thought it was good and not to attach ourselves to the romantic idea of the artist who is before his time. Not that either, but this man, like I wasn't in his head, but it seemed like he painted like because he thought it was good and it was something worth doing and he put it out into the world and and then he painted something else then he put that out into the world then he painted something else and he put that into the world it's not saying don't paint or don't cook casseroles or don't you know do your data entry or whatever it is that you do like do it and put it out into the world but you can't you don't have any control over how the world the world sees it and maybe you are like Van Gogh and you're an artist that won't be understood until, you know, years after time. Actually, 
Dogen's work, the Shobogenzo, was like pushed aside as I'm dusty. This doesn't matter at all until it was taken out and now it's this like cornerstone of Soto Zen. Maybe you're that and maybe you're not. You'll be dead before, <laughs> before we figure that out. But like just doing that work and and putting it out there is, is really all you can do and all you have control over, I think. My question is, and then maybe something that Suzuki Roshi didn't really deal with as much is distractions and like living in a world where it's so easy to like make things easier by um, distracting yourself with a lot of tasks that I might find like, oh, I, I don't exactly want to do this. Um, what can I do to make it easier? Mm. I'll li put, put my headphones on and listen to a podcast or listen to music. And like sometimes I start doing something I'm like, oh, what's missing? And I have to like stop and like put my headphones yeah. on and do that. Sometimes I, I get into these zones where I'm like, oh, this is really good. I can like just be present in what I'm doing and just like things flow well. But there's sometimes where I'm just like, I just want to listen to music. Sure. I don't know what, what your thoughts are. If it's a thing like, no, you have to like fight the, the idea of a distraction and just like stay with the, the action you're working on. Or if sometimes it's like, yeah, if it's kind of like walk the middle line and, and be easy on yourself. I think that's a very good question. Thank you so much for bringing it up. I, again, I'm answering this not from a position of authority, but from a position of just being on a cushion with you and my own experience. I've heard like a, a little Zen saying at this center, and I don't know exactly where it's from, but it was like a, a modern day one where like a monk was taking a walk with the phone, like talking on his phone, walking down the street, walking in, you know, in the, in the monastery, reading a book, chanting, like doing all these things at once. <laughs> and someone stopped him and was like, hey, you're a monk. What are you doing? <laughs> like, you can't do all these things at once. You can't be multitasking. That's not Buddhist. That's not, you're not doing, like, you're not we're doing a good example to the younger monks. And he was like, I'm just walking, just texting, just <laughs> reading, just chanting all at the same time. So my personal feeling and other people can have their own takes on this, but I felt what you're talking about. And it's the shame of I, why, like, I love listening to podcasts and cooking, but is this, am I being a bad Buddhist? No, <laughs> you're not being a bad Buddhist. You're only being a bad Buddhist if you're like killing things. Like, <laughs> don't murder people. Then um, you're being a bad Buddhist. Like, you can be just cooking and just listening to a podcast at the same time. I firmly believe that. If that's right for you, maybe someone like to fully be in an activity for what, what's right for them is just cooking without music or a podcast or just cleaning without music or podcast. But I firmly am against the, the shame and guilt we put on ourselves about being a bad Buddhist or doing something in modern life that we don't feel like is good enough. And forcing yourself to do something unnatural to you, and you can only, you're the only one who's the judge of it, right? I think you can just play video games and just watch TV and just dance in a club, whatever it is of modern life that seems very Buddhist, I think you can just do anything and you're really the only ju judge of it. You know, if you're using listening to music or a podcast as a way of distracting yourself from an emotion or not feeling something, I don't think that's a really bad thing. Sometimes we, or you hate cooking and you're using that to like distract yourself from cooking. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but like 
it is it is your judgment, right? If if you feel like you're able to just cook and just listen to a podcast at the same time, and and that's something that gives you pleasure, like who is Buddha to take that away from you? Is is my opinion of it, you know? And if you're if you take a walk and you're listening to music and that helps you on your walk and that focuses you when you are listening to music and you're just listening to music and you're just walking, then I think that's perfectly fine. And that's your life to live, right? Like, are you gonna, like, are you gonna die on your deathbed and wish you took more walks without music? If that's <laughs> something that gave you, like, some modicum of pleasure in this world of suffering, you know? Or is it something that's making you suffer more? Because I know some of these distractions I use to distract myself from a feeling, to distract myself from an emotion. I like we, I did a whole talk on precepts and we we talked about the precept not to drink, right? And the it's not specifically not to drink in the precepts. It's don't cloud your mind with intoxicants. And I think even in Japanese it's like don't sell liquor because, you know, you got to drink your sake during the cold winters. But like don't cloud your mind with intoxicants is very open to interpretation. You could have a glass of wine with a meal because that's something and I'm not saying you if not having a drink is part of your practice too that's good but I'm talking about in a looser like thinking about the precepts is what's right for you because this isn't gospel this isn't scripture Sunri Suzuki is not a god Buddha is not a god at least in our western interpretation of Buddha so this is not scripture this is not gospel this is what is right for you so having a glass of wine with a meal, for instance, for me, could be something enjoyable and nice. Having a glass of wine after a work full of leaving traces over everything, like I could still feel the tendrils cling to me to distract myself from the pain that I'm feeling, maybe that's okay and that's fine, that's something that I need, but that's probably me using it in a way that is distracting me and not wanting to feel a feeling when maybe it'd be easier for me to just sit with that feeling and feel it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much for coming. I believe uh, I'm going to give the old uh, gratitude speech, which is we're so grateful for your time and presence here. And if you can donate, we ask, uh, I think it's 10 to 15 Yes, 10 to 15, uh, but donate. If you can't donate anything, um, donate nothing. If you can donate a little bit, donate a little bit. If, you could, if you're a trust fund baby, you know, mm. donate, like, use your judgment. Um, <laughs> but bottom line is we want you here and your presence and it helps us keep our doors open. We wouldn't have a sangha without you. And your donations help us keep our door open. We wouldn't have a sangha without your donations. So we're really grateful to you and we thank you for whatever you can give, even if it's just your presence. Um, just stay happy.